pain tends to make people better or bitter. Suffering will either leave you a much better person or a much worse person than you were before. If you read about suffering, you will come across statements like that again and again. Those who work with suffering people notice this again and again. Pain tends to make people better or bitter. And this morning we've reached a point in the book of Job where we have to think about this truth. So far in the book we have seen Job lose everything. His wealth, his health, and his family. In a period of hours, all of that was stripped away from him. But we've discovered Job's suffering was not over in a matter of hours. It continues day after day as he grieves the loss of his children, as he feels constant pain in his body, and as he experiences now life at the bottom of the heap. He used to be honoured and respected as the greatest man among all the people of the East. His word used to carry enormous weight in his society, the very highest levels of society. But now Job's friends believe that his downfall is his own fault. And even the scum of the earth despise and reject him. Not only has he lost wealth, health and family, Job has lost his good reputation. And we know Job did not deserve this. The introduction to the book worked very hard to hammer that home to us. Three times it told us Job was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Twice, God himself was the one to give that verdict on Job. We know Job is not suffering because he has sinned. But we're at a point in the book where we have to ask, is Job in danger of sinning in the midst of his suffering? We know it wasn't sin that brought on the suffering, but is Job in danger of becoming a bitter, sinful person as he suffers? The answer is yes. The next section of the book is going to show us Job at a crossroads. He is confronted with a choice. He can become better or bitter. He can grow through his experience or he can become worse. The outcome of this is not automatic. Job has to choose how he's going to respond in his suffering. As we look at this, hopefully we will see you and I have the same choice to make. When suffering comes, we can decide that it's useless. Or we can work to make it useful in our lives. We can take it as a chance to learn and to grow. Or we can let it make us bitter and hopeless people. 
So turn with me, if you have a Bible, to Job chapter 32. That's page 533, or in the larger print Bibles, 823. Before we read this, I'll just mention this is a new section of the book. Over the last two weeks, we have heard Job's final words in chapters 29 to 31. They're not absolutely the last things he's going to say. We will hear a few more sentences from him near the end. But there are going to be no more big speeches from Job in this book. And now we come to chapter 32. And the chapter opens by reminding us Job's three friends have also gone quiet. But then we're introduced to someone new. Someone we haven't met before. So follow along as we read chapters 32 and 33. So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But Elihu, son of Barakel the Buzite of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with the three friends because they had found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he. But when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. So Elihu, son of Barakel the Buzite, said, I am young in years and you are old. That is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. I thought age should speak. Advanced years should teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in a person, the breath of the Almighty, that gives them understanding. It is not only the old who are wise, not only the aged who understand what is right. Therefore I say, listen to me. I too will tell you what I know. I waited while you spoke. I listened to your reasoning while you were searching for words. I gave you my full attention. But not one of you has proved Job wrong. None of you has answered his arguments. Do not say, we have fine wisdom. Let God, not a man, refute him. But Job has not marshaled his words against me. And I will not answer him with your arguments. They are dismayed and have no more to say. Words have failed them. Must I wait now that they are silent? Now that they stand there with no reply? I too will have my say. I too will tell what I know. For I am full of words and the spirit within me compels me. Inside I am like bottled up wine. Like a new wineskin ready to burst. I must speak and find relief. I must open my lips and reply. I will show no partiality. Nor will I flatter anyone. If I were skilled in flattery, my maker would soon take me away. But now, Job, listen to my words. Pay attention to everything I say. I'm about to open my mouth. My words are on the tip of my tongue. My words come from an upright heart. My lips sincerely speak what I know. The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me then if you can. Stand up and argue your case before me. I am the same as you in God's sight. I too am a piece of clay. No fear of me should alarm you, nor should my hand be heavy on you. 
But you have said in my hearing, I heard the very words, I am pure, I have done no wrong, I am clean and free from sin. Yet, God has found fault with me. He considers me his enemy. He fastens my feet in shackles. He keeps close watch on all my paths. But I tell you, in this, you are not right. For God is greater than any mortal. Why do you complain to him that he responds to no one's words? For God does speak. Now one way, now another. Though no one perceives it. In a dream. In a vision of the night when deep sleep falls on people as they slumber in their beds. He may speak in their ears. And terrify them with warnings. To turn them from wrongdoing. And keep them from pride. To preserve them from the pit. Their lives from perishing by the sword. Or someone may be chastened on a bed of pain. With constant distress in their bones. So that their body finds food repulsive. And their soul loathes the choicest meal. Their flesh wastes away to nothing. And their bones once hidden now stick out. They draw near to the pit and their life to the messengers of death. Yet, if there is an angel at their side, a messenger, one out of a thousand, sent to tell them how to be upright. And he is gracious to that person and says to God, spare them from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom for them. Let their flesh be renewed like a child's. Let them be restored as in the days of their youth. Then that person can pray to God and find favor with him. They will see God's face and shout for joy. He will restore them to full well-being. And they will go to others and say, I have sinned and I have perverted what is right, but I did not get what I deserved. God has delivered me from going down to the pit. And I shall live to enjoy the light of life. God does all these things to a person. Twice. Even three times. To turn them back from the pit. That the light of life may shine on them. Pay attention, Job, and listen to me. Be silent and I will speak. If you have anything to say, answer me. Speak up, for I want to vindicate you. But if not, then listen to me. Be silent and I will teach you wisdom. This is God's word. At the beginning of chapter 32, we're introduced to Elihu. Elihu is an angry young prophet. We know that Job's argument with his friends took place on an ash heap. Presumably that was a public place. It was outdoors and other people were able to listen in. Apparently that's what Elihu has been doing. We don't know how long he's been here. But obviously he has heard a good deal of what's been said. Some people have wondered what we're to make of Elihu. At the end of the book they've noticed God does not criticize Elihu like he criticizes the three friends. Nor does God command Elihu like he does Job. And that raises the question for us, is Elihu worth listening to or not? Well, I think this book gives us plenty of indications we're to take this young man very seriously. In fact, we are to take him as a genuine prophet of God. What are the reasons for that? 
Well, we're told more about his family background than any of the other characters in the book, including Job himself. He is Elihu, son of Barakel the Buzzite of the family of Ram. And even just giving us those details indicates we are to give weight to what this man says. And his genealogy seems to indicate that he is a Hebrew. Remember, Job and his friends are not. But Elihu's family tree seems to have connections to the family tree of Abraham and David. That gives particular significance to his words. And Elihu speaks four times. That's more than the three friends. He pauses between each speech, giving Job opportunity to respond. But Job never does. That also gives weight to Elihu's words. No one dares to take him on, not even Job. And we'll discover Elihu's words lead very smoothly into what God himself says at the end of the book. In fact, one writer says, the transition is so smooth, the Lord himself simply picks up where Elihu left off. And so we are to see Elihu not as another wise man, but as a prophet from God. Several people have pointed out that if we think of the New Testament, we might compare Elihu to John the Baptist. He prepares the way for the Lord's arrival and the Lord's words. Elihu is a prophet and he's angry. We're told that three times in the first five verses in the NIV. In Hebrew, it's mentioned four times. And later on in the book, the same words are used to tell us God is angry when he arrives. It seems then we are to take Elihu's anger as godly anger. He's angry with the three friends and with Job. We'll come back to the reasons for his anger in a moment. The other thing we're told is that Elihu is young. Younger than the three friends and probably younger than Job as well. That's how the writer of the book introduces him. And in verses 6 to 22, Elihu introduces himself. And he claims a greater authority. He begins by explaining why he's been quiet so far. In verse 6, I am young in years and you are old. That is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. I thought age should speak. Advanced years should teach wisdom. Elihu here is pointing to the accepted view of things in his own culture. Where does wisdom come from? It comes from age and experience. So if you have age and experience, you have authority. People ought to listen. In our own culture, we don't tend to think that way anymore. But we need to realize we are unusual in that regard. Throughout history, this is the way most cultures have viewed things. And there's a lot to be said for it. The book of Proverbs says it is often true that age and experience do bring wisdom. And so Elihu has been biting his lip while his elders speak. And even now, when he finally does speak, 
You'll notice from his words, he feels a bit awkward about it. That explains why he speaks so hesitantly. He keeps almost apologizing for himself. But now that he has listened to speech after speech, he can't bite his lip anymore. What he's heard has taught him that while age and experience should produce wisdom, verse 8, it is the spirit in a person, the breath of the Almighty, that gives them understanding. It is not only the old who are wise, not only the aged who understand what is right. Elihu says there is another source of authority, an alternative to age and experience. The breath of the Almighty can give divinely inspired wisdom. That's what Elihu claims to have. And it's an even greater authority than the wisdom that comes with age and experience. Verse 10, he says, Therefore, listen to me. I too will tell you what I know. I waited while you spoke. I listened to your reasoning while you were searching for words. I gave you my full attention. But not one of you has proved Job wrong. None of you has answered his arguments. Do not say, we have found wisdom Let God, not a man, refute him. But Job has not marshaled his words against me, and I will not answer him with your arguments. Back in verse 3, we were told, Elihu was angry with the three friends because they had found no way to refute Job, and yet they had condemned him. That's what he's getting at here. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. You looked at Job's suffering... And you decided he must have sinned to cause the suffering. It was a great theory that you had, but it didn't fit with the facts. You condemned Job, even though you could find nothing against him. He clung to his innocence, and you couldn't prove him guilty. But Elihu says, rather than rethink your theory, you've just thrown up your hands and said, we have found wisdom, Let God deal with Job. But Elihu says, if you can't answer Job's arguments, you can't claim to be wise. What you're doing is the equivalent of a child who says, I could jump over that house if I wanted to, but I'm not going to. And so Elihu says, I'm not going to rehash your lame arguments. I have something new to say to Job. Something he hasn't already heard and responded to. The prophet Jeremiah, elsewhere in the Old Testament, he said that God's word was like a fire in his heart. He couldn't hold it in. Elihu's experience is similar. He has a divine compulsion to speak. Look down to verse 18. I am full of words. And the spirit within me compels me. Inside I'm like bottled up wine. Like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak and find relief. I must open my lips and reply. I will show no partiality. Nor will I flatter anyone. For if I were skilled in flattery, my maker would soon take me away. So notice, Elihu is not taking the side of either the friends or Job. He has been sent as a messenger of his maker. 
He's going to speak for the sake of God's honor. He's not here to show partiality or to flatter anyone. And then having explained to the, explained to the friends why he had to speak, now Elihu turns to Job. And his opening message is, don't sin while you suffer, Job. Chapter 33, verse 1. Now, Job, listen to my words. Pay attention to everything I say. I'm about to open my mouth. The words are on the tip of my tongue. My words come from an upright heart. My lips sincerely speak what I know. The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me then if you can. Stand up and argue your case before me. I am the same as you in God's sight. I too am a piece of clay. No fear of you should alarm me, nor should my hand be heavy on you. Earlier in the book, Elihu has listened while Job spoke about his terror at the prospect of meeting God. Job wanted to meet God, but he wondered if God would just blow him away. And so Elihu says to Job, God has been gracious. He sent a fellow piece of clay to talk to you. I am a non-threatening messenger. But then Elihu gets to the heart of the issue in verse 8. But you have said in my hearing, I heard the very words, I am pure, I have done no wrong, I am clean and free from sin, yet God has found fault with me. He considers me his enemy. He fastens my feet in shackles. He keeps close watch on all my paths. But I tell you, in this, you are not right. For God is greater than any mortal. When Elihu was introduced, we were told he was angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. And now Elihu explains what that means. Elihu does not agree with the three friends. He does not claim Job deserves his suffering. He has no problem with Job defending himself. What Elihu takes issue with is the way Job has begun to defend himself. Elihu is telling Job to be cautious. Because as Job defended his own blamelessness, he began to suggest, and maybe more than suggest, that God is in the wrong. Job has shown signs he's beginning to care more about his own honor than he does about God's honor. He has become obsessed with justifying himself. And Elihu says, be careful, Job. You are not suffering because you sinned. But you are coming close to suffering in the midst, coming close to sinning in the midst of your suffering. One old commentary sums it up like this. Job maintains a good cause, but he handles it evil. In other words, he is in the right, but he doesn't deal well with being in the right. When suffering hit Job, he was a good man. And now as he suffers, he's in danger of becoming a worse man. He's allowing his suffering to make him bitter 
instead of better. If we pause here, we can notice that it's no accident Job's suffering arrived in chapter 1, but Elihu does not speak until chapter 32. Elihu's speech would have been totally out of place in the early days of Job's suffering. We saw then the Bible gives a lot of leeway for God's people to pour out their distress. To express the darkness that they're feeling. When pain and suffering have knocked the wind out of us, the Bible is not shocked to hear us shouting and to hear us confused. It's not embarrassed by that. We've heard it from Job and we hear a lot of it in the book of Psalms. Those angry words are recorded for us. To give us permission to pour out our hearts to God. When we looked at Job chapter 3, we saw Job at his lowest. And we used this, these words from Don Carson. It is far better to be frank about our grief. Candid in our despair. Honest with our questions. Than to suppress them. And wear a public front of puffy piety. Far better to be frank. That's true. And we need to take that to heart both in our own pain and as we talk to others who are in pain. But, there comes a time for us to think about where our anger might be taking us. The early days of grief and pain are not the time for that. What Elihu says would not have been appropriate in chapter 4. Job's pain was too raw. It was right to let him shout. God is amazingly gracious when his people lash out in their pain. But now as we come closer to the end of the book, it is time to hear Elihu's message. It's time for Job to consider where his suffering is taking him. And the fact is, it is not taking him in a good direction. In his desire to vindicate himself, Job is in danger of condemning God. His raw anger at his suffering is in danger of becoming settled, sinful anger against God. And as you and I hear Elihu, we have to ask ourselves if his words might apply to us at any level. This book has given us permission to be honest with God in pain. Totally and bluntly honest. But now we're being challenged. Whose honor do we care about most? Is honesty about our feelings crossing over into bitterness towards God? We may have begun... By crying out why to God, have we moved on to shaking our fist at him? Are we more concerned to see ourselves vindicated than we are to let God be God? 
and to see him honored as God. When others watch me in difficulty, when they listen to you in difficulty, would they get the idea that our God is glorious and trustworthy? Or would they go away thinking our God is mean and deceitful? That he's let us down? There's a time in Martin Luther's life when he was particularly low. He had been low for months. And one day he came home to find his wife Katie sitting in the kitchen. And she was dressed all in black. Morning clothes from head to toe. Luther asked her who had died. Katie said, God has died. Luther exploded at his wife. That's blasphemy. To which Katie replied, So why have you been living like God is dead? As we suffer, there comes a time to ask what we are saying about God through the way we suffer. Elihu goes on, and as he does, he picks up on something else Job has said. Job claimed that God has been utterly silent. In chapter 30 he said, I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. And we saw last week, on one level that is true. God has not answered any of Job's questions. So far, he's not given the face-to-face meeting Job has been asking for. But Elihu says, God does speak, even through suffering. Look at verse 13 of chapter 33. Why do you complain to him that he responds to no one's words? For God does speak, now one way, now another though no one perceives it. Though no one perceives it means even if no one were to perceive it. And Elihu goes on to give two examples of God speaking. The first example is divine revelation. When we began looking at this book, we noticed Job may have lived around the time of Abraham. That would make these events some of the oldest recorded in the Old Testament. If that's correct, Elihu is speaking at a time when there's not yet any written word of God. The primary, that primary form of divine revelation will come later. But in verses 15 to 18, Elihu mentions another form of revelation used by God. Dreams and visions. And what Elihu wants Job to see is that while God might not be giving direct answers to Job's prayers, it is not true that God doesn't speak. Job might not be hearing what he wants to hear from God, but God does communicate. Here in this chapter, Elihu doesn't make a big deal about dreams and visions. That's because he has a second example he wants Job to think about. God can speak 
And he does speak through suffering. Verse 19. Or someone may be chastened on a bed of pain with constant distress in their bones so that their body finds food repulsive and their soul loathes the choicest meal. From Elihu's speeches as a whole, we know he doesn't agree with the three friends. He does not think Job's suffering is deserved. He doesn't think Job is being punished by God. And you'll notice, Elihu does not apply these verses to Job's situation. What he wants Job to grasp is that God does speak through suffering. There are things to be learnt from suffering. It's a chance to grow. It is a chance to become a better person. But Job is in danger of refusing to learn. And so he's in danger of becoming a worse person instead of a better one. In verse 23, Elihu speaks about the suffering person having an angel at their side. The word is literally messenger. It can often refer to angels, but here it probably refers to Elihu himself. He is God's messenger, sent to tell Job how to be upright, how to respond well in the midst of his suffering. And Elihu goes on to say, God speaks through suffering for our good. Look down to verse 29. God does all these things to a person, twice, even three times, to turn them back from the pit, that the light of life may shine on them. Suffering presents both pitfalls and great opportunities. If we take the opportunities, we can steer well clear of the pit. We can move further into the light of life. Elihu has a clear challenge. We know that your suffering is extreme, Job. We know it's undeserved. Now, how are you going to respond in the midst of it? Are you going to let it make you self-righteous and bitter and perpetually angry? Are you going to go to the grave shaking your fist at God? Still shouting that he's not fair, that he's treated you wrong? Or will you bow down in your suffering and say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. You and I can turn this challenge on ourselves, I think. Last week we ended with a question. The question was, will you trust that your suffering is part of God's wisdom? That he will achieve something glorious through it? Today the question is slightly different. Will you trust there is something to be learnt in the midst of your suffering? That you can grow through it? That growth will not happen without commitment from us. Suffering is not automatically productive in our lives. Whether it's productive or not 
depends on how we respond to it. If we're going to mature and develop through it, we have to work hard to learn from it. What kinds of things might we learn? Well, Tim Keller gives us some suggestions and I'll just close by mentioning these. He says we might discover there is actually a lot of pride buried in our hearts. A deep self-sufficiency. We might not have known it, but we lived with a deep belief that we were in control of our lives. Suffering can teach us about our utter dependence on God. Suffering might show us we have been putting too much hope in the good things in our lives. Losing those things can show us we've been leaning on them for our fulfillment. It's a chance to learn that God really is enough for us. Suffering can show us whether we love God for who he is or whether we love him for the blessings he gives us. Are we in this to serve him or do we only love him when he serves us? Losing God's blessings is a chance to grow in our love just for God himself. To learn that he is worthy of praise simply for who he is. And last one, suffering can make us useful to other suffering people. It is hard, and I think we know this, it's hard to walk in other people's shoes unless we have suffered as well. That has been painfully clear as we've listened to Job's three friends. They had lots and lots of theory about Job's suffering. But they could never connect with the realities of his experience. They didn't know what it was like. But when you and I have gone through some degree of suffering ourselves, maybe our hearts will be more tender towards others who suffer. Maybe we will have more helpful wisdom to share with them. Maybe we will become more effective servants of our God. The New Testament tells us when we learn from our suffering, we are following the Son of God. The book of Hebrews says, Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered. Jesus' suffering was totally and completely undeserved. God achieved a glorious thing through it. And amazingly, we are told, Jesus himself learnt from his suffering. Let's ask God to help us learn in our own situation. And if we haven't suffered yet, let's ask God to make us ready to learn when the time comes that we do suffer. Let's ask for his help.
Father, we may not want to hear this. We may not feel ready to hear it. But will you give us hearts?